What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me here for this Wednesday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. This is a Sports Ethos presentation, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You guys can find me over on Twitter at JoeOrico99. We are joined here today by a very special guest for our first off-season show of the year. This is the last day of the Major League Baseball season, but we're going to start to shift in towards the off-season content mode of looking back on our drafts a little bit looking at the season as a whole and seeing how we did. And our guest is someone very special, a fellow Canadian. I was on a couple of podcasts with him this year already, and it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by him. And I think exactly one month from today, we'll probably be sharing a beer together down in the desert. Patrick Davitt of Baseball HQ and Baseball HQ Radio joins us right now. Patrick, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing fine, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. It's going to be fun. As I said when we were talking, when you were on Baseball HQ Radio, three weeks or four weeks or so ago. Uh, it's really fun for me to be on the other side of the mic. So I leave you to do all the work, and then all I have to do is think about what I need to say in response to all your work. So I appreciate the opportunity. No, it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun. You are an absolute legend in this industry. Baseball HQ has always been very kind with me, Ray and Ryan and yourself coming on as guests. It's a great site. You guys should go check out Baseball HQ and also go check out sportsethos.com while I have you guys here. Got a bunch of great content out right now, both free and on the premium side. But Patrick, first off, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got into the fantasy industry uh, to begin with way back in the day? I got into fantasy baseball when I was working at a newspaper in Regina, the Leader Post, and we had this league. It was really new. Fantasy baseball was quite new, and the, some of the sports writers had figured out that it was going on, and they said, let's set up a league. But it was it was a crazy league with all kinds of weird rules. It only lasted a year because everybody was arguing the whole time about what the rules were and, and whether we should use ratios or numbers or blah, blah, blah. So uh, a little earlier than that, I had been working, putting myself through school. I was a baseball umpire in the summer, and then during the winter, I worked at a local FM radio station as an overnight uh, disc jockey. And what I had this girl who used to phone in all the time and, and sort of pester me, and I kind of put her off and uh, – one night she phoned me and she asked me how come I was driving a different car. And how would she know I was driving a different car was the first thought that ran through my mind. So, uh, of course, everybody who's a disc jockey on an overnight shift has seen playing Misty for me, the Clint Eastwood movie that ends up with a crazed stalker running around the radio station with a pair of scissors trying to do in old Clint. So I called the guy across the hall on the AM side and I said, Perry, uh, sh- shut and lock your door because there might be somebody in the building, because the back door, we always left it open because it was so hot inside the studios. So I called the cops, and they came, and they found her across the street, in a, across the alley, you know, sitting in some guy's uh, driveway, and she was just spying on me. She was kind of weird in that way, and, and they took her away and gave her a stern talking to, and uh, she never did that again. But it turned out a few years later that this guy across the hallway, Perry Nias, was in a rotisserie league. And we had talked a lot about baseball when we were co-workers. And he said, I know you like baseball. Are you interested in joining this league? And I was, and I had to go through a bunch of interviews. But I got into the Regina Rotisserie Baseball League, I think around 1991 or thereabouts, and stayed in that league, gosh, for 15, 16 years, something like that. Then I moved away, and it got impractical to get back to the draft every year and so on. And since then, I've just been playing uh, experts, leagues, tout, and TGFBI. and the uh, Raz Slam Points League and, and stuff like that. I've actually tried a couple of times to look into getting a local league, but I haven't been too successful. 
I was at a school concert of my daughter's and a guy came up in the intermission and he tapped me on the shoulder and he says, excuse me, are you Patrick Davitt? And I said, yeah, I am. He says, I listen to you on your podcast all the time and we got a league and we were wondering if maybe you'd want to join the league. And I said, yeah, sure. Of course. I really would like to do that. And then he said, okay, give me your phone number. And then he never called me back. And my daughter told me he left the school under sudden circumstances or something. So that was my one chance to get a local league, but I'm still in the, is still in the market. If you're in the Kingston, I mean, it's in the Kitchener Waterloo area in Ontario. Well, hell, I know uh, my home league is always looking for an extra person or two, maybe next year. I know it's more of the Toronto area, but uh, we do it online. But we'll maybe talk about that a little bit more off air. In terms sure. Of, in terms of uh, this season, would you say it was a success for you or more in the failure column? How did your teams do overall? Um, not great. I'm going to probably finish ninth in uh, Tout, which is my main league. And again, I started off pretty well and then got decimated by injuries. I played the league better. I, I picked up um, A.J. Pollock when he got traded over in week one. I spent 700 out of 1,000 of my fab and raised a lot of eyebrows. But I thought, hey, I'm going to get this guy for the whole year. He's replacing my worst outfielder. I think it's a good move. And I still think it was a good move. He just didn't play that well, unfortunately. And, and then he got hurt. In TGFBI, as I said, I started really well and then faded. Uh, I I think I had a terrific draft, but I got outworked in the early going, and that was a lesson learned because I was playing with guys like uh, Clay Link, who's won the TGFBI overall. Uh, Eno Saris is in that league, and they were all behind me, but they all finished ahead of me. And then in Razslam, uh, that's a best ball, uh, 43-man roster kind of draft and hold with a couple of fabs. And um, I made the first cut and then uh, fell at the second second fence. So... It was uh, it was a pretty poor year by all extent, but I don't count them as success or failures. I mean, there's always just learning opportunities, and was it fun? And I have to say on those scores, it was, yeah, it was pretty fun. Uh, I, I enjoyed the year. I enjoyed the leagues. I enjoyed the format. So that's all you can hope for. Of course, you'd like to win, but that can't be something that happens every year. No, of course you pick up little tidbits of information here and there every year. You've been playing, like you said, more than 30 years. I'm still, I'm sure there's still things that, you know, every year you learn a little bit more here and there, whether it be about fab or about your draft process or, you know, certain things to sure. look for and avoid. There's yeah. always lo- always little things to be learning. Uh, before we did start recording, you mentioned that Spencer Strider was one of your biggest misses of the year in terms of you just failed to go and place a bid on him. Or maybe you just got outbid. I'm not really sure the circumstances exactly. Maybe you want to talk about that a little more. And maybe some other guys that you missed on uh, throughout the season or maybe even before the season, if there are some guys that you were either big on or too low on and you just missed on them one way or another. Well, in that league, I was using Spencer Strider as an example of being, I was just too complacent because I was in first place in my league. I was probably 10 points ahead of the pack. And I just thought, man, I drafted a really good team because I I had, I drafted from the 15th slot, which is always pretty tough. But I had a pretty good strategy. I held off on starting pitching till like the eighth round, and then I went eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, all starting pitchers, and uh, and uh, that part of it worked really well because I got Gosman, I got Justin Verlander, I got Sean Manaya, which I thought was going to be a a plus, and turned out not to be so great. And uh, I got Framber Valdez in a couple of places, so I had pretty good pitching considering how deep into the drafts I was going. But I got outworked after the draft. And the Spencer Strider example is one of those things where I knew he had been called up, but I looked at my starters and I thought, I don't think I need to replace any of these guys with a rookie. 
and uh, there was a bidding war that I wasn't a participant in. And in hindsight, I look back and I think that was a situation. And there were others early in the year where I got a little complacent because of how well I was doing. And uh, I know I've heard Eno and Clay both talk on their podcasts about how you got to start grinding from day one. If you can make a one-point improvement in any slot in your roster, you have to go do it because if you don't, somebody else in that league is going to do that, and that's the guy who's going to beat you. And sure enough, uh, they uh, they ended up well ahead of me, and I think in that league I'll be lucky. I think I could finish fourth, but I'll probably finish around sixth. I did want to take a little bit more of a closer look. Last week when we had our friend Torres on the show, we were looking more on the pitching side. I did want to look more at position players today. Which guys were you really big on uh, heading into this season, and how did they end up performing for you this year? Mostly they they were all pretty good. Uh, I, I liked Cedric Mullins a lot because nobody seemed to believe that the previous year was for real. He was a $40 player, I think, on Baseball HQ's valuation, and uh, nobody thought he was going to repeat that, and I didn't think he was going to repeat that either, but I thought he can fall off by 20% and still be a $30 player, and he was and he was going below that level. He went $26 I got him for in the tout auction. And uh, I didn't get him in TGFBI, but I got sniped. I would have had him in the round that he went. I just got sniped by a couple of slots. And it, Cedric Mullins worked out really well. I spent the 26 I got 32 Uh I liked Salvador Perez as another kind of, he did it last year, he can't repeat it this year candidate. And if he hadn't got hurt, I think he would have probably pretty close to matched his 2021 season 23 home runs as we speak and of course he's going to end up as a disappointment because of the injuries and especially his on-base percentage really collapsed he was up around 350 or so in 2020 then he fell to about 320 last year and this year he's back under 300 but I think that might be a injury risk another guy I like Joe was Jorge Mateo. Gene McCaffrey told me about Jorge Mateo when I was interviewing him for Baseball HQ Radio. That was his one boon for the season that he said, you got to get a hold of this guy because he's going to lead the league in steals. Sure enough, I got him for $7 and at a fairly low slot in a couple of other drafts. And he's going to be a $20 plus player for me because of the bags. And he hasn't been as horrible as I expected in batting average. And he did chip in a few runs and a few home runs. I think Jorge Mateo was really good. And then my last gamble was at Tout. I decided that I was going to be very risk-averse as far as rookies went. But then right before the draft, I read an article online at BaseballHQ.com that said, look out for Julio Rodriguez. It looks like he's going to make the team. So I got him for 7 bucks. And, well, how much better can you do than that, right? Uh, I had Manny Machado in a couple of leagues. He stopped running about half, um, two months into the season, so he didn't really work out that well. And my big, uh, my big bust was probably Kevin Smith. I remembered him from Toronto, and he had a real good prospect pedigree, and they thought change of scenery, going to a bad team where they can be patient. So I grabbed him, and uh, that didn't work out too well. And I got Xander Bogarts, who was just okay. You know, he, he made his, he made his draft slot. He made his, auction bid but he wasn't a profit in any way and and i think overall when i look at him i just i know he had an actually an okay season but somehow it feels disappointing and that's part of the thing yeah i think that might just be the red Sox as a whole even rafael devers i was looking at him earlier he was fine this season i mean he was still i mean in the grand scheme of things he had an exceptional year if you're talking the average major league baseball player 
but it still felt kind of disappointing as a whole uh, for those Red Sox. Now, in terms of Jorge Mateo, I know the big thing against him, and it was kind of a similar argument with John Birdie that we were seeing or that I was seeing, and that he only gets you steals and he kind of just zaps you in the other categories and it's not really worth it. But Mateo ended up with 63 runs, 13 homers, 50 RBIs, and I mean, a 221 batting average is, is nothing to write home about. But he ended up, if you're looking at the way that Yahoo calculates their value in terms of all players, he was 166th for the whole season, which is absolutely fine. If you're talking, you know, your average 10, 12 team leagues, any, any leagues really, Jorge Mateo was, was a solid pickup there. And I mean, for the most part, he wasn't even being drafted in those 10 and 12 teams. Right. He was just going to be someone that you picked up uh, off of a waiver wire. Uh, for me, I know I mentioned this to you before. Tyler O'Neill was somebody that I, badly missed on this year it felt it felt like a horrible miss I thought that he was going to be the National League MVP we've talked about this I think we first talked about Tyler O'Neill on Potapalooza a couple of months back because the topic was disappointing hitters and I don't even remember exactly the the outcome of that discussion in terms of O'Neill are you looking for probably a bounce back next year are you going to be buying the dip in price that we're going to see I'm not sure there's going to be as big a dip in price that it's going to take for me to be interested because so many people and analysts that I read and listen to in fantasy baseball seem to think that this was kind of a fluky bad season. And they're all advising their readers and listeners, you know, don't be asleep on Tyler O'Neill. He's still really good. He's got all the skills that you want. Uh, could be a power speed guy playing in a tremendous lineup. So there's probably the potential for lots of counting stats. Uh, everybody, I think, is going to like Tyler O'Neill more than I am because I am going to be – as I always am, pretty injury adverse. Uh, I don't like picking up guys with it, especially recent injury history, but injury histories in general, unless I get a pretty substantial discount because I don't want to pay in for that much risk. And St. Louis has options in the outfield, even after they traded um, what's his claim to uh, New York. Yeah, the, Bader. The, yeah, the, yeah, Bader, Harrison Bader's gone, but they've got a lot of They've got a lot of ways they can spin on the outfield situation in St. Louis. So Tyler O'Neill is not as guaranteed playing time as I think his skills warrant based on what he's done these last, you know, season and a half or whatever it, whatever it's been. Yeah. No, you, you, you were correct on that. I think, I mean, I'm just looking at all NFBC drafts this past year. His ADP was 48. If you just go to main events, his ADP was 57. So. I can't see him going quite that high. I think maybe 70s, maybe 80s. And I, I might be tempted to to dip my toe in the water, even maybe just for one or two shares of Tyler O'Neill. Because I feel like if he is healthy, he will produce. Even this season, he wasn't healthy for a lot of the year. And the counting stats while he was out there were still not terrible. I mean, 14 home runs, 14 steals, uh, and you know, only 330 at-bats. So it's not terrible. It's not the end of the world. Uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit here and talk about Aaron Judge. Last night, he did break the American League home run record, depending on how you view the entire situation. You might see him as the all-time home run record. Now, maybe I'll just get your take on that one real quick. Who's the home run king right now? Who Who is the home run record in your eyes? The single-season home run record belongs to Barry Bonds, and I say that I don't like it. I can see how people don't want to give him credit where it's due. But I, I also believe that we don't know what all was going on in the lives of all of the guys who hit lots of home runs. I mean, we're, I'm pretty convinced that Bonds was using steroids, and I'm pretty convinced that McGuire and Sosa were using steroids. 
And if it falls back from there, then sure, call call Aaron Judge the uh, the home run champion, single season home run champion. But we don't know what's going on in his background either. I mean, I, I don't want to accuse anybody or say anything. And the one thing that leads me to believe that he's for real is, I don't know if you've read about this guy, Richard Skank, the uh, batting coach that uh, Aaron Judge found through his agent. And because his agent had used this batting coach, he's some guy who lives in some place in Missouri and owns a bowling alley or a billiards hall or something. And he's he invented a whole new way, or well, not invented, but he's coaching guys on how to hit based on how Barry Bonds swung the bat. And it's not like a standard baseball swing. It's not level and plain. It's definitely uppercut. And he and he has all these things he shows you. Look him up on YouTube. Skank is spelled S-C-H-E-N-K. Mm. And he has all these things about, like, you got to drop your hip and turn it before your hands get moving and all of these things that look pretty unnatural. But Aaron Judge says he saved his career because he was a 140 hitter or something in the minors. And then when he started following this guy, he started like, what did he have in his first year, 52, something like that in the big leagues? And he gives all this guy all the credit. And we know that when we see an unusual performance, the one thing we have to look for is, is this guy doing something different? If it's a pitcher, does he have a different pitch mix? Is he getting more movement on one of his pitches or more of his pitches? Something like that. And when it's a batter, one of the things we should be looking for is, did he make any fundamental changes to his swing? And Aaron Judge redesigned his swing, and he just seems to be getting better at it and more consistent. I think he's for real. I just don't think I'm going to pay the price next year, although I might be tempted if uh, if I'm at one round one pick four and he's still there. Yeah, I probably will. I think he can hit 60 home runs every year from now for the next five years. Really? Because, eh? well, there's a couple of interesting things there. You wouldn't think that changing the swing to an upward trajectory like that would lead to a good batting average like he has seen this year. What is he at? 310, 311, whatever he's at. You would figure that would lead to more power and a lower batting average, more level swing. You figure you'll make more contact through the zone. But eh, what, what do I know, I guess, is that at that point? If he's if he's modeling it after Bonds and he's doing that, hopefully that's the only thing he's modeling after Bonds. Because, right. I mean, if you look at Judge, his figure, his physique hasn't really changed since he's entered the league. Bonds essentially, you know, ballooned to three, up for sure, to, th- yeah. to three times his original size. Um, and, his, and his head four times. Yeah, exactly. So, and, you know, the thing about Bonds, too, is he never once hit 50 home runs other than the one year where he hit 73. That was the only year where he ever went over 50. So, I mean, there's a lot of fishy stuff to go on there. He's still the record holder because that's the way it is. But, I mean, moving yeah. on to moving on to Judge, I would feel a little nervous, I think, taking him that early next year. And I've seen a couple of guys like Todd Zola uh, putting out the results of these early drafts that they're doing. And that's where he's going. He's going pick three, pick four, I think he went in, in, that, in that particular draft. I just would worry a little bit about, for one, um, I think he's probably going to stay with the Yankees. But he'll have just signed probably, arguably, maybe the biggest contract we're going to see in baseball history to that point when it gets signed. I'm not sure how much money they're going to throw at him, but it'll be it'll be a hell of a deal. Uh, maybe he takes the foot off the gas a little bit next season. Maybe he's not on such a, a push. Maybe he's a little bit worn out from this season of how many home runs he said. I'm just, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical. The steals as well. Will he steal this many bases again? Are, are you worried at all that there will be some regression there? I mean, you're not with the home runs, clearly, from what you said there. Well, I just don't believe in any theories having to do with contracts and performance. I've, I've, I've been looking at baseball statistics and baseball analysis for a very long time, and I've never seen a study that, that verifies there's such a thing as a contract year boost. It's the last year of my contract. I got to play better. 
and I've never seen such a thing as a post-contract signing flop as proof as proven. It happens, but I think it happens by coincidence. I don't think professional athletes can actually just turn off the engine to that extent or take their foot off the gas to use your expression. They have a certain amount of pride. And if you're if you're a judge, he must be thinking, you know, he could finish with 600 career home runs if he keeps going. Mm-hmm. And if he takes if he stops playing his best then he's not going to attain any career marks that he may have his eye on, first of all. But the other thing is, I don't think baseball players can turn turn it on and turn it off like that because it's such a situational game. You know, I mean, you can probably turn off parts of it, maybe not practice as often and that kind of stuff. But when you're standing in the batter's box, it's more of a muscle memory instinct thing. And I think that would be very tough to turn off. Right. I think you'd make a point about the steals. You know, he's a big dude. Uh, they're going to make the baselines a little shorter next year, so they may be a little bit more intriguing. But the biggest thing I think you bring up correctly is why would the Yankees have this guy run? You know, they're they're a power and and on base team, and they don't need him to steal bases to score runs, especially if they're leading him off. Um, you know, with all of those bangers that are coming up the behind him. You know, I don't I don't see him stealing as many. I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if he does. But I'm not drafting him for speed. I'll take you know ten bags, and I'll take the 65 home runs for sure. Right. Well, 65 would certainly be a hell of a feat to to repeat that next year. I guess maybe part of me worries that seeing career years and successive seasons, especially to these heights, might be kind of hard to attain. Uh, I guess maybe I mean even if he hits 55 home runs or something like that, it would hard to classify it as a as a disappointment. Right. I'm just, I'm just thinking in that top five range, we're gonna see Ronald Acuna Jr. We're going to see Julio Rodriguez. I guess Aaron Judge is going to fall after those two guys, probably. God, it, it's, it's Jose Ramirez. Trey Turner as well in that kind of range. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very tricky. It's very interesting to start to think already. And it's crazy to think that people are already participating in, in real <laughs> yeah. live drafts for next year. Are you going to be doing any of these early drafts? I doubt it. I, I like to take a month off or so after the season's over. And then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have the uh, round table end of season edition of baseball HQ radio on the 11th with Ray and Todd. And we'll talk about it. And after that, I kind of mellow out until, you know, just after Christmas and then I'll start looking at it seriously. I mean, I'll, I'll read along as like a hobby during the, during the December period, but I can't see drafting. I'll, I'll see what other guys are doing in drafts and, and maybe take some notes about that, but it's too early for me. I just don't think it even makes sense for for a draft to go that early, given all of the unknowns that you're drafting to. It's it's fun for some guys, and I don't begrudge them one bit. But it's not for me. Is there are there not some drafts that take place at first pitch? Don't they start get the NFBC drafts uh, going in Arizona? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's there's drafts there of of uh, various kinds. Uh, I think they're doing NFBC this year, but they also do just basically drafts that are internal to Baseball HQ and they give out uh, Baseball HQ prizes like, you know, free stuff and uh, right. free a free uh, site fee and, and that kind of stuff. But like I said, I, I don't mind if you want to do a draft in December or November or October or day after tomorrow. As far as that goes, it might be fun and interesting. Like I, it's just not for me. I got other things I like to focus on and get my head off of baseball for a while. No, for sure. It'll be nice to take uh, a couple of months off. Although there is a small part of me somewhere that thinks, 
maybe I want to do one in Arizona. And I think I probably, at the end of the day, my first time going out there, I'll, I'll, I'll probably get my foot, uh, my foot wet yeah. in that water for sure. We're talking here with Patrick Davitt. You guys can check him out over on Twitter at Patrick Davitt. That's with two T's and check him out over at the baseball HQ radio podcast. A couple more questions here for you, Patrick. Now we talked a little bit about next season. Uh, I want to ask you. Are there any guys that you think might go a little bit later in drafts than they should that you're going to be really targeting on a lot of your teams? Um, yeah, I think so. Especially younger players. I think Adley Rutschman's going to get overdrafted next year based on the fact that he just was a really good baseball player this year. And that kind of tends to encourage people to think a little bit more of their actual fantasy level production. He's a catcher, which everybody likes. And he was you know, super productive against fastballs, but he was pretty rough against breaking pitches and especially off-speed pitches. There's like a 160-point drop-off in Woba from fastballs to uh, off-speed pitches, and that gets around in the league. You know, the league figures that out, and then the challenge would be for him to figure it out going back and uh, and getting that, that Woba and that performance up against non-fastball pitching. So he does have good plate discipline, and I think that's a plus for him looking ahead in his career because that's something that players often only develop later in their careers. But if he has it to start with, I think that's a big plus. The flip side of that is O'Neill Cruz. I think O'Neill Cruz is probably going to get drafted. I wouldn't be surprised to see him going in the seventh, eighth round, maybe even earlier. And I just don't think that the risk is worth is worth the draft. He's got 35 homer, 20 stolen base potential, no doubt about it. If you prorate what he's done this year, that's about where you land. But, man, are there a lot of holes in this guy's game. He's got a million swing and miss problems, and that means he's a batting average loss probably. And then you're not on base at all 30% of the time because you're striking out. There goes your RBIs and runs, especially in a poor lineup like Pittsburgh's going to be. You're hitting in the middle of a, of a poor lineup. I just don't think O'Neill Cruz can amass the kind of counting stats that we need to justify the risk of taking him that high in the draft. And he's got some good buzz about how hard he throws the ball from the shortstop position to first base, 120-mile-an-hour throws or whatever it is, like Sid Finch back in the day. But there's been a lot of defensive lapses. I've watched a few games. They show the highlights of him, and he throws the ball away, kind of like a, a lot like Bo Bichette. In fact, he makes the sensational play and then he picks up the routine grounder and airmails it into the seats or puts it 20 feet in front of the first baseman on the ground or way wide. It's just a, it's a real inconsistent fielding performance. And when we think about rookies, I think we have to be aware that the teams can't put up with that kind of defensive indifference or poor performance or inconsistent performance. And he could find himself, you know, DHing or playing third or something like that, and uh, that would help his position eligibility, I guess, but I'm not that big a fan for sure. Yeah, I know there's some people in the industry, uh, specifically the Welsh from in this league, he's not a big O'Neill Cruz guy, and I understand it. I think that he can pile on the counting stats, and I think if you're in a points league, he's a lot more interesting to me where you don't have to really worry so much about the batting average. He's just going to rack up the points for you with the home runs and some steals. Uh, the counting stats, like you said, are going to be a little bit hard. Those runs and RBIs in that lineup. Not really much of a, a bright future out there in Pittsburgh for sure. Who knows no. what they're even going to do with them? I mean, 
guy. I'm not a big prospect guy. I'm not sure how how deep you know the prospect pools, but I don't. I can't think of any other real big names uh, that are pirates that are coming up that are even going to be along there to try and help them out. I know Jack Sawinski uh, came up this year. He was, you know, he was pretty good. Had some good power, but it's kind of it's kind of tough. Uh, yeah. in, term, in terms of rookies as a whole, you mentioned a couple of them there. Are you worried that we're going to see a lot of regression from the likes of Julio, from Bobby Witt, from Michael Harris? Do you think that those guys are all going to be overdrafted after their phenomenal seasons? It was one of the best rookie classes we've seen in a long time. Do you think these guys are collectively going to go too high next season? I think it's likely, but not because they're rookies. I think it's likely because anybody you draft in the first round has nowhere to go but down. You know, it's a it's a known fact that the players that get drafted in the first round almost always are unprofitable. But that's not because they're bad players. It's because the cost is so high to roster them that they have no way to make a profit. Right. It's like if you if you translate a first round pick into dollar values at an auction. So you're talking, say you're talking about the first overall guys worth gets forty five bucks a draft, like. Uh, you know, like uh, maybe an Aaron Judge will next year, or certainly this year, Jose Ramirez was kind of up there in a lot of American League-only leagues. So there's no way they can turn a profit. That said, I think there's also an added risk with these rookies because there are going to be shortcomings in their games that are going to get discovered or have been discovered, and they're going to have to show that they can adjust to it. For instance, uh, Julio Rodriguez pretty poor plate metrics. He's in the 15th percentile of swing and miss. He's got the 19th percentile of swinging at pitches out of the zone and those kind of things. He strikes out a lot. When he hits the ball, he hits it hard, and that's a big plus. So what you're counting on is that he gets the strikeouts down and puts the ball in play enough to realize the kind of potential that he has as a power hitter, as a run producer, and especially uh, stealing bases. Now, he got hurt this year. Back problems, that worries me. Back problems at age 21 or 22, that reminds me a little bit of uh, of some other players in, in past history. Mike Trout had back problems, and he overcame it, but later in his career he didn't. So I think that's a worry. Uh, Bobby Witt, he's worse even than Julio Rodriguez at swinging outside the zone, and his hard hit metrics are way short of that level. I, I think Bobby Witt could be a real disappointment next year of the three guys you mentioned, I think he's the biggest danger. I think he'll go in the third round, something like that. And I've heard, I've seen him go earlier in a couple of early drafts and I wouldn't do it. Uh, Michael Harris, uh, poor plate discipline again, especially against breaking balls, but he hits it hard. He steals bases. I think maybe, uh, Michael Harris is going to be the guy who gets drafted the lowest out of these three. And therefore, is the guy who has the likeliest chance of being a profitable player, or at least a break-even player. Like I said, you get drafted in the first round. It's a very tough thing to do to return first-round value, just because it's there's nowhere to go, as I said, but down. Yeah, of those three guys, uh, of Rodriguez, Witt, and Harris, Julio is for sure he's going to be a consensus first-round pick in every single draft. You might see Bobby Witt sneak into the end of the first round in 15-teamers. I think he might go 14, 15 in that range. And then Michael Harris, I think it's still kind of undetermined. Maybe in the 40s, 50s, somewhere in that range. Uh, It's hard to say, but you're right. You're exactly right. He can build that value, especially if the Braves have him leading off next season. Like That would would be huge for his value. But at the same time, when you look even at this past season, I'm looking at just top the based on NFBC ADPs. These are the hitters that were going in the first round. Trey Turner, 
Ramirez, Juan Soto, um, Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero, Bryce Harper, Kyle Tucker. These guys are more in of an established, you know, at least a year, a couple of year track record of we know what they can do. Juan Soto was the only real disappointment in that group, and even he wasn't terrible. Uh, so I think I might lean towards going for those guys who have a bit more of a track record next season. I'm still going to get a couple of shares of probably Michael Harris specifically, but I don't know if I'm going to take Julio over guys like Ronald Acuna, like Trey Turner, like Jose Ramirez. But I think some people will be doing it. I agree that you're right. Some people will because the shiny new toy is always the most interesting toy under the tree, right? And yeah. people want to be excited and and, uh, and look at this new thing that they got and everybody else didn't, where everybody else just went along with the good old boring Trey Turner, oh, what, him again? Well, Trey Turner is Julio Rodriguez, kind of, you know, when you add those the stolen bases and home runs together. And he's done it, as you said, for, what, six years now, something like that in the big leagues? And he he plays every year. He hardly ever gets hurt. Uh, Jose Ramirez is another guy who's uh, been a power speed guy for as long as I can remember. I had him on a really good uh, – a tout, not a tout team, uh, uh, Regina Rotisserie team, and he was really terrific. There's other guys, though, that when we talk about rookies, we tend to focus on these guys at the very top of the list, like the guys you mentioned, Harris and, and Witt and those guys. But don't be sleeping on rookies that are kind of more down in the middle rounds. And I think like Vinny Pasquantino of Kansas right. City, this guy, I, I got him in tout a week before he got called up, which is one of the things that they let you do in tout. 11.6 walk rate, 12.4 K rate. This is a guy who's as big as Joey Gallo and has, you know, not that much power, but considerable power. And he's striking out and walking at the same rates. And to me, that's just astonishing. And he's been, he did it in AAA and he came up and everybody said, well, now the, you know, the uh, solids are going to hit the fan. Nope. He just kept right on doing it. 92 mile an hour exit velocity, nine home runs and 258 plate appearances, like a mid twenties home runs for a full season. Gunnar Henderson in Baltimore is another guy, very short cup of coffee so far this year, but 20 home run pace so far. He's got some speed. Stephen Kwan. How high do you think Stephen Kwan's going to go next year? And how high do you think he should go? And I think he'll be a, hmm. Close around pick 100, I would say, off the top of my head, probably, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit lower, but I think in that range, 100 to 120, probably. What do you think? Yeah, I think somewhere around there, maybe a little lower. And I think he could be more rewarding, maybe around higher. Yeah. He has absolutely no power, and that's the knock on him, but he's going to hit 300, probably. He slaps the ball all over the field, he gets on base. He'll score a million runs hitting at the top of that lineup. I think that he's going to be a very valuable guy to pick up in those in the tenth round, eleventh round, somewhere in there. Uh, Brendan Donovan. We were talking about Tyler O'Neill earlier. How about Brendan Donovan? Another guy, thirteen percent walk rate, fifteen percent strikeout rate. This is unheard of in modern baseball, and I think there are teams like Cleveland and increasingly, I think, like C uh, St. Louis, who are looking for guys like this because. They're going back to the old Whitey Herzog formula. Get guys on base, run like crazy, create your own runs, rather than standing around waiting for somebody to hit it over a fence somewhere. And play solid defense, which all of these guys uh, help out. And the last guy I'll mention is Bo Naylor, another Canadian kid. His brother's already on the Cleveland lineup. He got called up and activated on Saturday. 
for the last few games, and it looks like he's going to go into the playoffs. In the minor leagues, how about this guy? 21 homers and 20 stolen bases for a catcher in AA and AAA combined. 392 on base percentage in AA and AAA combined in an 890 OPS. That's I don't know so how, how widely known Bo Naylor is going to be next year, but he'll, I'll, I'll be knowing him for sure. Yeah, he won't cost you any. I mean, if we're talking, I tend to focus more so on 10, 12, 15 team kind of home league situations. He won't even be drafted in those leagues. If you're talking right. one, one catcher leagues, maybe in two catcher leagues, he gets drafted as, you know, the 30th catcher off the board, 29, 30th catcher off the board. In most cases, he's not even going to be drafted. I really like the Vinny Pasquantino pick. We haven't seen a hell of a lot of him, only 71 games this season, but what we've seen has been pretty good. And next year, we get another full year of probably a little bit better Bobby Witt. Maybe you said he could be a bus candidate, but I think he'll still be, you know, he'll be reasonable. MJ Melendez, Sal Perez in there. Uh, I, I think they're going to be not a terrible lineup. So I like Vinny Pasquantino as kind of like a, a late, kind of probably not a late flyer, but somewhere in the middle rounds and Gunnar Henderson as well. He's going to have eligibility all over the infield. They've played him at, sh- at second. They've played him at short. They've played him at third. I think he'll probably, he won't, he, I don't think he'll, he has it, uh, this year already, but I think within maybe a month or so of next season, he'll have eligibility all over the place. And, you know, he's shown yeah. us that five category kind of game. Uh, Corbin Carroll is kind of another one. Maybe he'll go a little bit too high next season yeah. because there's just a lot of hype around him as the number one prospect. But, you know, that lineup, I, I like Arizona's lineup quite a bit. I think he could be, Depending on where they put him, he could, he, I mean, he is a five category candidate in the same vein as Gunnar Henderson, maybe a little bit more expensive, but, uh, it's a, it's a good call. You don't have to just focus on those guys at the top of the board. There could be some rookies who are falling a little bit or who will be kind of afterthoughts who could still provide a lot of value there. I think Bo Naylor, when it comes to next year, a lot of how he's perceived going into 2023 drafts is going to depend on what he does in this playoff run. You know, he's a, he's a hitter and he's a runner and he's a pretty decent defensive catcher. And when you look at Cleveland, I mean, who else do they have catching there? Have they had anybody since, I don't know, Sandy Alomar or something like that? So there's a path to playing time. And gosh, if, if he goes through the playoffs and hits, you know, six home runs and steals six bases, he's not going to be a secret to anybody. Right. They're all going to be champing at the bit. So oh, I can't wait for my draft next year because Bo Naylor is going to be on my list. And when everybody says that, you know, he ends up being the fourth catcher gone and the sixth catcher gone because right. of the speed. The Randy Rosarena effect of the of the playoffs. Yes, absolutely, uh, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here. I know you've, uh, I mean, like you said, you kind of want to take a bit of a break from baseball now that the season's done, but I, I really appreciate you coming on here. Are there any other thoughts you wanted to get off your chest here before we let you go? Well, I'd like to reiterate what I said earlier that, it's increasingly important now to be willing to outwork your opponents to be successful in most fantasy leagues if they're at all competitive. I mean, obviously, you can go and join a home league where you're the only guy who even knows what OBP is, and, and you can dominate the league, but that's not that interesting, frankly. If you're in it for the money and you can pick up $1,200, $1,500 a season just beating up on guys who aren't that good – but they don't, they tend to come and go, right? Because they know that they're dead money at the table. So I think because of the leveling of the information advantage over the years, everybody knows about Lima plans and everybody knows about, you know, the advanced stats are making their way down into the just everyday baseball fandom. They're showing them on TV. 
all these kind of things. So I really think that the key to success in the future is going to be just outworking or, or matching the workload and the effort that people put in. And the other part of that is I think understanding the prospects is going to be ever more critical because the change in the CBA means rookies are getting to the league sooner, they're getting played sooner, and they're contributing sooner than ever before. So if you're in a league format that allows you to stockpile or um, hide away some prospects, you need to be aware of what's going on. And not just from the preseason list that you get at Baseball HQ or from Baseball America or Prospectus or wherever you get your preseason prospects, you need to be following the AA and AAA leagues on a regular basis and looking and seeing who who here has really shot up the list, who's playing really well, especially for poorer teams. That's how I found Vinny Pasquantino this year. I was looking at all the guys, and they have more sortable stats than ever at MILB.com, and I saw this guy. I said, what the heck? This guy's got 30 home runs, and he's only striking out 12% of the time. I'm interested. And right. then I look at Kansas City. I mean, not exactly uh, the, the uh, 27 Yankees as far as breaking into the lineup. So right. that's where I got interested in him. And o- over the years, I think that's going to become more and more important as well. We just have to be aware of, well, Spencer Strider. I should have been more aware of him, and I wasn't. Right. I didn't I didn't even get a bid in. So that, that's my lesson for today for sure. Uh, my home league this year added that N.A. slot. For adding in a minor league player before they're called up, and it was it was a great addition. Everybody, yep. for the most part, I mean, of the of the twelve guys, I think ten or eleven of them, for the most part, were kind of looking into the minor league stats, and we're going to start up a dynasty league from that same kind of group for next year. And it kind of just gets you more invested into baseball. But that that NA slot, which is what they call it on Yahoo, I'm not sure what they call it on the on the other sites, but it led me to guys like Gunnar Henderson a couple weeks early, Corbin Carroll. A little bit early, uh, as Jerry Ruiz earlier in the season when we thought he was going to come up and, and do a bunch of damage before he got traded. But, uh, it's really, it really pays off to, to pay attention to the minor leagues. Even if you're not want to get so deeply focused in it, maybe even just keep an eye on AAA and AA and specifically AAA. Those are the guys who are likely to be, uh, knocking on the door of the big leagues any day. And I mean, not at this point because obviously the season is concluded, but heading into next year, uh, that's a great piece of advice, Patrick. You want to just remind everybody once again where they can find you and what you do over there at Baseball HQ? Okay, well, mainly I think you can find me on Twitter at Patrick Davitt. Uh, my last name is spelled with a V D A V, like Victor I T T. And uh, I do fantasy baseball research pieces during the offseason at baseballhq.com. Starting in January or so and going through until the season starts, I'll do try to do two or three stories about the theory of fantasy baseball rather than just the player information. Although I look at that as well. And of course I produce and host the baseball HQ radio podcast. Uh, we have our end of season roundtable pod coming out on Tuesday, October the 11th with Ray Murphy and Todd Zola. That's always fun. And uh, of course I'll be down in Phoenix, November 3rd to the 7th at first pitch, Arizona. And I've just been told that I'll be moderating the big player spotlight panels on Saturday morning and then hosting the HQ Radio podcast live with the studio audience that same afternoon. So if you haven't heard enough of me, this is your opportunity to come and and, uh, get even more. Not that I expect that anybody's going to do it because I'm there. But uh, if you are there, please come and say hello. Tell me you heard uh, either my podcast or Joe's podcast or both our podcasts because it's always good to hear from people that we're getting out there and people are listening and getting some use out of it. 
Oh, that'll be a hell of a lot of fun. I will be there a hundred percent. It's exactly one month today, I believe. Yeah, today's the fifth. One month today, we will be there watching baseball. Arizona Fall League got underway, I think, two days ago, three days ago. I'm seeing clips posted online of these young studs, and it's going to be a lot of fun to be there. And hopefully, it coincides with uh, Game Six or Game Seven of the World Series. That would be yeah. the cherry on top of the cake there, absolutely. But Patrick. Thank you so much for taking the time. You guys should go follow Patrick. Like he said, at Patrick David. I'm at Joe Orico 99. Also go check out sportsethos.com. That is where you can find all of our written work and premium content. Guys, we will see you again tomorrow. Best of luck today. If you are listening on this last day of the season and cheers, everybody. <laughs>